0: And Romans thirteen eight to 14. Let no debt remain outstanding, except the continuing debt to love one another, for whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and whatever other command there may be, are summed up in this one command... Love your neighbour as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbour. Therefore, love is the fulfilment of the law. And do this, understanding the present time. The hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here.
1: That's a mystery to me. While he does that, it's lovely to get together at 4pm and 6pm. We knew that ahead of some glorious services tomorrow, both here and at St. Phillips, um, we suspected that a combined one would work for us, uh, both this week and next week. Um, uh, This is Craig's last evening church here in in this building. This building. Got 9:30 next week here in this building, so you know if you want to catch that, it's a little moment. Um, But next week Craig will be uh, giving uh, the message up at St Phillips at five o'clock. So tell your friends all that, and um, that'd be worthwhile doing. And it is worth saying that tomorrow, Christmas Eve and Christmas Day, they are just gorgeous services, really. I mean, Craig will tell you about them, I presume, at the end. But um, if I can put it this way, it's a free kick to your neighbours and family members, you know, because it's carols and it's a lot of joy, and um, we work hard at it. So, um, at, well, quite frankly, Andy Bell's worked hard at it. <laughs> People always say to ministers, "Oh, it must be a busy time of year." I say, "It's a busy time for the music guy." <laughs> um, do you want to pray ahead of our reflection on uh, on this carol again? Let's, let's pray. <sighs> Father, we here now ask for wisdom and insight, to know just how to make room in our hearts for your Son, Jesus Christ, to be intentional about that, to prepare him room. And then we ask for power, inner power, um, power in our inner beings, as the Apostle Paul says, to grasp how wide and high and deep is the love of Christ, to anticipate, to invite and to make ready the coming of our Lord, not the first time uh, at the Nativity, nor even at his appearing, but now, tonight, uh, as he comes to us in his spirit. We sang it a moment ago, you are here, you are here, you are holy, and so we ask you to do your thing in our lives, in our hearts. Um, We pray this for Christ's sake. Amen. Amen? Amen. Okay. Next week, we'll ask for a hearty one. So, our Advent and Christmas series is a meditation on each word in the, in, of one, one line from Isaac Watts's carol, Let, well, joy to the world, but the line is, Let every heart prepare him room. Why the series this way? Well, each of those words is packed with meaning. Can I use the word pregnant with meaning this Christmas time? Births. Packed with meaning. Uh, so, what does it mean to let or allow Christ to do anything? You know, why doesn't he just force his way in? Why every heart, not just some hearts? Why is it a universal claim? Why the heart and not just behaviour? And how do you prepare him room today? I hope it's a simple series for a busy season. There's overlap, of course, through the series. Isaac Watts wrote Joy to the World in 1719, which is 300 years uh, next year. I said 200 years last week. Thank you to nobody who told me, except for Andy Bell. I can do my math. I can. It's always Andy who tells me. Yeah. 300 years ago this year, you know the carol. We're going to sing it in a moment. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. That's what you do with grace. Let every heart prepare him room and heaven and nature sing. It's got joy written all over it. Presumably it's a reflection, well, it's on, Psalm, on the Psalms, but that line is a reflection on Luke 2, verse 7. She wrapped the baby Jesus in cloths. And placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. There's no room now. That's just a fact in Luke. No sense that there should have been room, or that that's supposed to be a, you know, something for us today. It's the poets who, who flipped the language and, and here the hymn writer Isaac Watts used this idea and flipped it into a personal challenge. If there was no room then, is there room now? Let every heart prepare him room. I do find it interesting that. At the birth of Jesus, there was no room for him. And you could argue, like, there isn't really in Australia today. So what does it mean to prepare him room? What would an intentional preparation look like? What sort of preparations are required for Christ to come now? A holy child of Bethlehem to send to us, we pray. What do I do? How do I make him a part of my life? How do I prepare room in my heart? It's interesting that Jesus, in Luke 14 makes a point that if you're going to follow Jesus, you've got to be intentional about it. And he uses a really simple illustration to any of you who've done any business, any project management. Jesus says beautifully, suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Don't you first sit down you know, in your mind and in your heart and you, you, know, you think about it and you estimate the cost to see if there's enough money to complete it because if you lay a foundation and you're not able to finish it because you haven't thought about preparing for it, then everyone will see you and ridicule you. They'll say this person... Began to build and wasn't able to finish. So if you're going to prepare him room, how are you going to get to the point where people don't say to you, this person began to follow Jesus, wasn't able to finish? Which, by the way, is a theme for the Garrison Church at 4 p.m. this year. I've been listening. So. Two points today, and these are in your zine in the outline there. Preparing for his coming is a theme of the Bible. It's part of the narrative of the Old Testament and New. This is on page nine. And secondly, I want to ask the question, what does it mean then to prepare him room now in my heart, to all my heart, and to every part of my heart? So firstly, preparing for his coming is a theme of the Bible. Certain things in life require preparation. Maybe the most important things do. Uh, My wife and kids, we hosted our family Christmas lunch yesterday. Required preparation and quite a lot of it. Pretty glad my mother in law was around, quite frankly. If you give gifts at Christmas, it requires pre thought, usually. Preparation to give a good one, anyway. If you plan to go on holiday, I am on Christmas Day, it requires room in your heart and in your calendar to make it happen. Truth is, we live in a smartphone, Google, buy it now, throw it out tomorrow world, and so we expect things to happen immediately. In another day and age, you speak to the diggers at 8.30, preparations are just required for almost everything, and preparations become, in many ways, as big as any event. We believe in God here at Churchill. That's a surprise. We believe in a God who created the world a certain way, with rhythms. And you can actually see the rhythm and design of our world in the sense that good things often need to be planned for. And then you need to wait for them to come. Humans have been around for long enough to know that a life built on immediate gratification never provides the stability or the joy we yearn for. So certain things in life require preparation. You know it's true. So a theme of the Bible is that we need to prepare for God's coming which means two things. Number one, he'll come. Number two, you need to prepare for it. That's the case throughout the whole of Scripture. In fact, one of the reasons why prophecy exists is so that God doesn't surprise them with a judgment from Babylon. It's like, by the way, hello, let me just tell you a few things that are coming your way. Almost the whole Bible, especially the Old Testament, has that sort of language. By the way, the time when most people become Christians is not usually prepared for. You ask somebody when they first became a Christian, and quite often their story will involve no preparation. You know, they went on a camp, they heard a message, they heard a sermon for the first time, they were bored when the sermon started, but there was something that was said halfway through where a light went off. Um, You know, or a challenge, uh, uh, some suffering, or or something confronting happened, And it drove you perhaps to examine God for the first time, a challenge from someone else. Most often people will say, you know, I became a Christian, you know, I can tell you right now it was January 1988. uh, And I was at a a Katoomba convention and I was bored until the guy said something I understood. And I wept as I sang, and can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Now, nobody's, I didn't say to myself, you know, in a week's time and one day, I've got it in my calendar, I'm going to give my life to God. Just, I mean, because of the Spirit of God and the nature of the way God gives new hearts, it's a gift. You, know, you don't plan for it. However, I should say that those who don't believe might like to be open to the possibility of believing. Just open. What if it is all true? One of my favourite lines is, uh, C.S. Lewis was walking... On the road with J.R. Tolkien, J.R. Tolkien, Lord of the Rings. He believed it. Lewis didn't believe it. And Lewis was arguing and arguing and arguing about why it wasn't true. He's in his 30s or something. Tolkien stops in his tracks and looks back and says, I'll tell you why I don't believe Jack. He says, um, What does he say? Because you have a lack of imagination. Your inability to believe stems from a a failure of imagination on your part. Not that Tolkien was saying to Lewis that it's about imaginary friends, not at all. But rather, you can't imagine for a moment that you're wrong about God. And that what is said in scriptures might be right. You can't step aside from yourself for a moment and say, what if it is all true? It's exactly what C.S. Lewis did and gave his life to Christ. The most dejected convert in all of England. So British. So British. Those who don't believe might like to be open to believing. And those who do believe, those who have this new heart, need to be prepared for the challenges. That's exactly what happens in the narrative of the Bible. Some examples in the Old Testament of the promise of his coming and the call to be prepared for it. My favorite, if you've been around for long enough, is Isaiah 35, verse 3. I use it every time at Christmas. Strengthen the feeble hands, steady the knees that give way, Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear, your God will come. There's a promise. He will come to save you. Or classic, Isaiah 40, comfort, comfort my people, says your God, speak tenderly to Jerusalem, tell her the sin has been paid for. We just sung that a moment ago. And then you get this voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God, See so your God, your God will come, and He will send a messenger beforehand who will speak, call in the wilderness, just so you'll be all prepared. The messenger means that you won't be surprised. That's in Malachi chapter three, uh, 400 years before Jesus comes. God says, "I will send my messenger, who will prepare the way before me, before me, when I come, and then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to His temple. You think about that. Now, put that in your pipe and smoke it. The messenger of the covenant, whom you desire, the one you desire, will come, says the Lord Almighty. And the next chapter in Malachi, see, I'll send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the righteous. God sent Elijah ahead of his arrival in the figure of John the Baptist, you see. And while a baby, uh, his father Zechariah, held little John the Baptist, in the, I presume in the crook of his arm, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, he looks at John and says, you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High. We just read it a moment ago. For you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, Malachi, to give his people the knowledge of salvation via the forgiveness of sins, because that's the only way you have knowledge of salvation, because of, and here's this dawn language, because of the tender mercy of our God by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the path of peace. And John the Baptist grew, became strong in spirit, and he lived in the wilderness until he appeared publicly to Israel to prepare people for the coming of the Lord. And you want to know what John the Baptist's basic message was? You ready? It was just get ready. God is about to arrive. Get ready. Something huge is happening, and you don't know what it is. I met a future king a couple of years ago, um, the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge, William and Kate. It required some preparation. You know, I got a suit, all lined up. Of course, the morning of, I match the wrong pants with the wrong suit coat. I'm hoping he, I'm hoping he didn't notice. <laughs> a friend of mine, it um, required some, pre- not, yeah, not much preparation, a friend of mine went to school in the United Kingdom and uh, one particular day the Queen was coming to his school. You know what they say about the Queen? Wherever she goes, you know this one? Wherever she goes, she smells fresh paint. Always preparing for her. It requires preparation, royalty. My friend on the morning uh, was doing the thing that teenagers do, wandering around in places that he shouldn't be wandering, and he went upstairs to the bathroom he normally goes to, which is a foul toilet, you know, a little privacy. I get that. But on that day, that particular foul (laughs) student toilet, uh, which they thought no one would enter, was actually done up in preparations for Her Royal Highness, Your Majesty. The bathroom had been done up, repainted, brand new toilet with the royal seal and the whole place filled with flowers. He walks in. Nobody was there. You should know. But who knew the preparations you make for royalty? Question, how do you prepare God room? Because he don't care about fresh paint, new bathrooms, flowers. John the Baptist said, clean up your life. Stop stuffing people around. Stop taking advantage of others. It's time, he said, not to be curved in on self, but rather to be curved outward to others and upward to God. He he warned them of the coming judgment. And he told them to beg for forgiveness and to ask God to light a fire in their hearts. That's what he said. It's all in Luke 3, by the way. Look it up. Look it up. When you look up Luke 3 from verse 4 and following, Luke establishes the link back to the promises of God. When Luke says that John the Baptist is a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord and make straight paths for him, etc., and all the people will see God's salvation. That's what you see if you see Jesus. And what did he say to those crowds pouring out to see him in the wilderness? John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the coming wrath produce fruit in keeping with repentance. John the Baptist had no spin doctors around him, no marketing people to say, why don't you butter them up with a little joke before you start, then they'll listen to you. None of that. And forget about entitlement, forget about a presumption. Do not even begin to say to yourselves, John said, we have Abraham as our father. You know, we're Anglicans. I tell you the truth, God can raise up children of Abraham, out of these stones, you think you're so important. Then the judgment, right, the axe is already laid at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not bear good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. You see, get ready, (laughs) you know, God is about to turn up, and you do something, you do something when you turn up. Now, that, of course, drove people to the good news of the gospel, come to that, but they said then, well, what shall we do then? You know, we've got to do something. And then John gets very practical. Remember, this is what it means to prepare for the, for the Lord's coming. And John answered, Anyone who has two shorts, shirts should share with the one who has none, and anyone who has food should do the same. So it can't be selfish anymore. Then a word to different professions, a tax collector stands up and says, what should we do? And Jesus says, don't collect any more than you're required to. It's so simple. Stop stealing. Because that's what they're doing. They're saying, Rome wants this amount. We'll take that amount. Some soldiers you know, stand up and go, what should we do? And he replies, don't extort money. Because that's pretty easy to do with a gun. You've got a, power, well, a sword. That's power. And don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay." Naturally, people wondered if John was the one to come. Luke uh, 3, verse 15, the people were waiting expectantly, were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah. John answered them, I baptise you with water. You come to me, I'll immerse you in water. But the one more powerful than I will come. The straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie, I baptise you with water. He will baptise you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Fire. You see, get ready. <laughs> then Jesus came, <laughs> proclaiming the kingdom of God. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. This time of Jesus' life is the time of God's visitation. They're Jesus' words, which most people will not recognize. They'll just go, good guy. But what we're saying is that this one is royalty, You. Universal royalty. The eternal son existing before the creation, having turned up God with us. is raised from the dead, is now reigning on high, and therefore no prime minister, despot, or dictator is truly in charge. There is one who's in charge. His name is Jesus Christ. This one who lived the life we should have lived, died the death we should have died, Jesus paid it all, and he was raised from the dead so that I can have a substantial hope and say, right, and say, Because he lives, I live. Let every heart prepare him room. Prepare him room. So secondly, what does it mean to prepare him room? We've already beginning to get some answers to that, of course. What does it mean to prepare him room? Into my heart, into all of my heart, and into every part of my heart especially those parts that you won't, don't want to give over. As I said last week, our hearts are funny things. Proverbs 4, above all else as a priority, guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. I love how the New Testament says, um, rejoice in the Lord and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts. In Proverbs, guard your heart. In the New Testament, is God will guard your heart. I love it. But you and I, um, we have secrets—some that we expressed to God not 13 minutes ago. You have desires you don't want people to know about. We talked about this last week. Actions and regrets and pain in the past—it's all there in your heart. The phrase that Mary had—she treasured all these things in your heart. These are things you don't treasure. I mean, they, they, they give you something because they lead you to um, humility and to Christ. But they're not fun things that you have lodged in your heart and in various darker corners of your heart. There are parts of your heart that you're happy to see and to the extent that you can take a photograph of you happy um, and content, you'll Instagram that, no problem. gives people a glimpse, perhaps into the heart. But there are parts of your heart that you hope no one will see, not even a significant other or a person you love. The fears, the desires, the fantasies, the hatred, the pride. What would it mean to give or to prepare room in your hearts in in those parts of your heart? What I mean for you to prepare him room. In the Romans reading um, that we just had a moment ago, Paul says to learn to love again. You know, because um, if you come to the four pm uh, kids carols, which might be fun to come to, by the way, child or no child, neighbour or no chat neighbour, grandchild or no grandchild. <laughs> Emma's here. She'll <laughs> tell you all about it. There's going to be some beautiful reflections on heart size, small and big. Paul says, if you've got a small, protected heart, it's time to learn to love again. So he says, let no debt remain outstanding except the one debt to love one another. If you're going to have credit debt, make it loving others, which, of course, there's no limit on. For whoever loves has fulfilled the law. Then he says the reason for doing this is not... um, just because love is a good value. The reason he says to do this is because a dawn is coming, the day is about to come, and so stop acting like it's night time. Come once, comes now into hearts, he'll come again. So the Apostle Paul says, and do this, love one another, understanding the present time, the hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber. By the way, when I was 18, this, that's the sort of word I would have, Listen to. I would have gone, I think that might be for me. It's it's time to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over, the day is almost here. You see, there's a dawn metaphor, just like in Isaiah, and just like Zechariah to John the Baptist, as the, the dawn comes, and there you are living life the way you want to live it, but you know the claim that you are to prepare Christ's room to love one another, to do what God wants you to do, but you keep pressing snooze, keep a snooze, and then snooze again. I'll put it off. I won't put off becoming a Christian, I'm here, but I'll put off these parts of my heart. And the Apostle Paul says, no, no, the night is nearly over, the day is almost here, so let us put aside the deeds of darkness, the stuff you do in secret, and put on the armour of light. And then it gets practical in verse 13, it will mean not doing drunkenness, it will mean not doing porn, which is the Greek word for all sexual immorality. It means don't do jealousy, there's something in the heart. Don't do dissension, you know, um, you're on my side, you're not really, let's drag you to me, alienate this person over here. Done with groups. Rather, the apostle says, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. In other words, you won't just do whatever you want to do. In other words, wake up from your slumber. Stop pressing snooze and make your bed. By the way, I'm not talking literally, although literally, feel free to do so. I'm saying spiritually, make your bed. Get your house in order. Uh, You are to love again because you understand the time. You've placed yourself correctly in history between Christ's first coming, his coming now into hearts, his future arrival. You know what God has done in the past, what he's doing now in human hearts and what he will do in the future. And so you are wide awake to God, ready to live as in the daytime and you've got room then in your heart for him. So to those who are woke, Uh, It's time to do five things in conclusion. Here we go, five things. If you're writing notes, pray, open something, anticipate another thing, identify and recall. Let me just go through those. Pray first. Ask God to come in. One of my favorite Anglican prayers is cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit. Pray it (laughs) alone at home or, or together God, flood my heart with Christ alive. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you, Jesus said. Fill it, God, with all joy and peace and believing. That's what Paul is saying in Ephesians chapter 3, when he says, I pray, I want, and because I want, I pray to God, that out of God's glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through the Spirit in your inner being. That he'll put beautiful, strengthening scaffolding in your heart so that Christ may dwell in your heart through faith. You see that? If you want Christ to dwell in your hearts through faith, he's going to need to turn your heart into a um, a strong vessel for the spirit of God to be alive. So that, the apostle goes on, you may have power, together with all the Lord's people, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. It is dimensionless. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled, there it is, with the measure of all the fullness of God. It's a bold prayer to say, I'm preparing Christ's room. first. Secondly, you'll need to open your heart, like we said last week. Open your heart's a little bit like opening a home. It doesn't happen if you're protective or if you're trying to show off the best areas or if you believe in entertainment rather than hospitality because then what you do is you minimise the people who come in. Now, I'm not talking about your hospitality program, although... I hope you have one, and I hope that in some sense it springs from an open heart to God. But a little bit like opening a home, opening your heart to God doesn't happen if you're protective or worried or fearful of God. You need to know that he's full of grace, and full of grace, you can then be vulnerable to God's work in your life. If he knows that he embraces you at the lowest point, can't you therefore create margins in your life for God to come in and then flood the whole thing? That means you need to create margins, which means you need to stop the busyness and allow him in. Third, after opening your heart, third, anticipate his work in your heart over time. Expect it, want it, look forward to it, but be realistic about change over time. That fear, the anxiety, the addiction, the sin that won't go away, you need to never stop believing that he can change you. The language that God... Another language that God uses for his work in your life is fruit, and fruit takes time, and sunlight and water, nurturing. Fourth, so what have we got so far? Pray, open your heart. Thirdly, anticipate his work. Fourth, identify those areas that need work. I think we might be talking a little bit more about this next week, uh, next Sunday. But in John's world, preparing for Christ's first coming meant that tax collectors needed to identify the specific things. I skim money off the top. The soldiers knew they had specific problems. You know, they could bully people uh, with, with, with power. They had personal problems. They were also social evils. Right, so right and left side. Personal problems, social evils. But in the end, they're all connected to the heart. So what does it mean to prepare him room if, for example... You're a judgmental person. What would it mean for grace to flood your heart? What would it mean to prepare him room if you were a fearful person? You know, um, somebody once told me this. When a spider enters the room and everyone can see it, it the spider fills the room. Everyone, (gasps) no one sits there going, um, oh yeah, there's a spider, but um, can you grab me a drink? That's the way fears work, you know. They walk in, and it's actually quite small. And for another person, they could just squat it with a shoe, you know, or. But for you, it fills the room. (laughs) What does it mean if fears fill your heart, but you want to prepare Christ's room? Or what does it mean if you're a person with an addiction? That's going to take some time. You know, because the mind is wired and, and habits form the mind and create addictions that are, that are difficult to supersede or replace. I'm not speaking here as a psychologist and there are psychologists in the room. I'd love your reflections on this or listen to the series on um, a messy faith. From, uh, in the, the, I'm not speaking about that, but I'm saying, what does it mean if I, if I want him to rewire my heart and my behaviours so that I can have my heart habitually and regularly orientated towards God in a way that affects everything in my life. Lovely book called um, You Are What You You Love. Write that down. You Are What You Love by James K.A. Smith who says, what we need is habits that keep rewiring us and our minds and our hearts orientated towards God. What does it mean if you're a businesswoman with power? Or a gentleman at work who's been wronged? What does it mean if you're a mum that's got nothing left in the tank? Or a dad that feel, doesn't feel appreciated? And I guess in the end, it's all the same. It's make me like Jesus Christ. If he comes, you prepare room for him. And he comes into your heart, then he moulds your heart. You look more like him. And if you say, well, I don't, why, why do I want my life to look like Jesus' life? Well, my recommendation is read the gospel. Just read a gospel and be enamored once again to the life of Jesus Christ. Fifth and finally, recall his work for you. Recall his work for you. Remember it. Remembering is a beautiful habit. Remembering takes an event in the past, makes it alive in the heart, in the present, for the future, for the sake of the future. Listen to me. Recall the work of God. He has made promises that are astounding i'll give an example in isaiah 25 god says he's prepared something for you and if he's prepared something for you can you prepare room for him in isaiah 25 the prophet says on this mountain in jerusalem the lord almighty will prepare something a feast of rich foods for all people a banquet of aged wine the best of meats and the finest of wines i sort of hope that's what my meal last night looked like for my family But here's the Lord Almighty doing something to prepare for you, a feast. Jesus spoke about the kingdom of God as a great banquet. But this banquet promised in Isaiah 25 will be a funeral, yes. A funeral for death itself. Therefore, the only funeral with pure joy. On this mountain in Jerusalem... God will destroy the shroud that enfolds all the peoples, a sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. There's that dawn language that we're waiting for. And he did this by sending his own son to live and to die. That took preparation, promises made over thousands of years. But the upshot of his preparations is this, that the sovereign Lord will wipe away every tear from every eye and he'll remove the disgrace Our disgrace from all the earth, declares the Lord. He'll deal with the suffering. He'll deal with the sin. That's the promise. He prepared that feast. Are you prepared then to make him room? The dawn is upon us in the life of Jesus Christ. It's time to wake up, to stop pressing snooze, to prepare for that day and to prepare him room now. Let me pray. Father, we um, say along with Isaac uh, Watts, we say joy to the world, the Lord has come. And we pray the prayer, let let the earth receive her king. But for us, we pray, let every heart prepare him room. Let each heart prepare him room. And so we pray that you'll give us an, an intentional heart, a desire to be open to him, um, we pray that he'll baptize us um, with fire once at, um, at our, our move from death to life, but also each day you'd fill us with, your, with his presence, with power to grasp how wide and long and deep is the love of Christ to Wake up from our slumber and live for him. And we pray the result of this will be um, that heaven and nature will sing joy to our hearts. For Christ's sake. Amen.